0: Alright, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Sunrise and weekend two. This is our fun, all the weekends are good. Uh, in terms of just daily living, this is the most fun weekend because this weekend is where we're talking about um, marriage, the role of the husband, role of the wife, sexual intimacy, Uh, parenting we'll have several sessions on parenting a session on uh, comparing comparing counseling philosophies uh, as well as um, you'll see another video so uh, it'll be a fun weekend these hours will go quickly Uh, there's so much that we could talk about in fact I just left I've been all week at uh, Lafayette Indiana where we were doing a conference there and I was I was in multiple tracks, but I was primarily teaching in track seven where there's 30 hours of just marriage, right? So although we're talking about some marriage stuff, we're going to define it here in just a moment, uh, although we're talking about that, really you're just getting, we're scratching across the top. There's so much more we could talk about. There's so much more you could learn. Uh, but in a conference like this where you're dealing with the basics, that's not... The goal isn't to learn it all, uh, but to get as much as we can in and, and try to give you a broad, a breadth of what is available. So this evening, again, we're going to start with the origin and purpose of marriage. Just one thing I will mention to you uh, is that we, <coughs> pardon me, everything is similar to last week in terms of the restrooms. We've not moved those. Uh, the meals, the breaks, all that good stuff, uh, so if you need to s- stand up even to, it's been a long day for you, you need to stand up to, to get your focus back, that's fine as well. Uh, I'm used to college students like the two coming in right now, I'm used to them walking in and out uh, during a session, so mm. what you do isn't going to interrupt us too bad all right let's pray and have a word of prayer on to get us started we love you lord we're glad for the time we can spend here together we pray that you would give us wisdom as we think about your word wisdom as we think about marriage and homes and the role of a husband role of a wife parenting thank you for the instructor's That we have in in both tracks and those that are here to serve us we're grateful for them lord we pray that we would not look at this material simply to help someone else but that we would first apply it to ourselves if we're married if we're parents if we're grandparents uh, if if we hope to be married if we're engaged all of those areas there's many things we can learn and think about and i pray you'd give us wisdom as we seek to do that too pray that you'll be honored in all we do in jesus name amen all right let's start with then a good definition of marriage and i think in your notes there it says marriage in today's culture we're in a unique unique time we i spent some time just yesterday reading a lengthy article Actually, one article led to another, led to another, Uh, and so I was following the divorce trends in 2023. Uh, Now, over a few years, 21 and 22, uh, divorce, the instances per 1,000 marriages had dropped. And it had been on a steady decline for a while, and I think the main purpose for that is because of cohabitation. All right, so when you take the between 20 and 30, right now the average age for someone to get married, for guy and girl, male and female, first marriage, uh, is one of them's like 29.6 or 7, the other one is 30.1. So they're right at 30 years for both. Now, why are people waiting so long? Because they've taken their 20 to 30 years, and they've uh, committed those years to cohabitation, All right? So unless you're in a traditional home, unless you grew up in a traditional home, or unless you grew up maybe in a church setting uh, where the, you know the Bible has something to say, the majority of folks that are between 20 and 30 or 18 and 30, they're kind of living together, doing their own thing. And they're in and out of relationships, so that the total divorce rate is dropping, because where they would have been married at 20, 21, 22 and gotten out of that first marriage before that decade was out, usually by twenty-three or twenty-eight in that range, uh, those are not counted anymore. Right? No one tracks cohabitation and and especially serial cohabitation. So. So that's why the divorce rates look a little bit better than they used to, but reality is it's because we're not starting marriages until 30. And a lot of folks getting married at 30, they've been cohabitating for a while. They feel like this is going to go okay. And so that's when they're beginning uh, their track toward marriage. So is it true that one out of every brand new marriages has the possibility Uh, or has a probability for divorce. That's the article I was reading this week was talking about that. Every marriage has the possibility for divorce, right? You can be married to, you can be the the most godly person in the world. But you can't divorce-proof your marriage because you are only responsible for 50% of it. Now there are certain things you can do that help. There's a lot of things you can do that hinder. But just by national statistics of all people in the United States, it's probably in the 45% range in that ballpark of first time marriages that end up in divorce. The reason when people say 50% of all marriages fail that's because marriage two, three, four, five, six, those numbers skyrocket, right? So if you, this is a second marriage, it's 60 plus percent. If it's a third marriage, it's closer to 70% of the, the potential for divorce. So, so when you aggregate then all of those together and do the math, it pushes that bottom number closer to 50. So that's why people would say, one in every two marriages end up in divorce. It's really because it's it really gets rampant on the two, three, four, five, and six level, uh, where in the first ones it's maybe thirty or maybe forty percent, between forty and fifty. Um, again, it's it's ticked up in the most recent stats. Oh, what else would I tell you about the current culture? Right, marriage is being defined a lot of different ways now that you have. Uh, homosexual and lesbian relationships where they would call those marriage Uh, so really when you even talk about marriage it has a little bit different sense about it if you watch the Twitter verse or X or whatever we'll call it and there's been a lot of people talking about Alistair Begg and his comments recently about whether or not you should attend a transgender wedding right so this is a topic that's pretty popular Uh, and certainly one that we want to think carefully about. So let's talk then about, let's define it. We'll define it this way. We'll begin with marriage is a lifelong covenant. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Listen to what Malachi says. It says, and this is the second thing you do. You covered the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands yet you say for what reason because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously yet she is and here's your uh, key words your companion and your wife by covenant All right so when you get married you're making a covenant with another person and it is a covenant Right in Proverbs, it uses similar language. If you'll notice, uh, when it says in verse seventeen, "Who forsakes the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God." So we often talk about it's a both a vertical and a horizontal covenant. Right by vertical, we would mean, or by horizontal, let's start there. We would relate to the fact that it is. Uh, between a husband and a wife there's a covenant and then by vertical we would say it's between uh, a husband and wife and god so in matthew of course nineteen six, that text says so then they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let no man separate right so it's a covenant now that's going to become very important Because when we think about covenant, we think about God's covenant faithfulness. We have a great example with God. Notice in your notes there, a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. That includes promises. It involves pledges, requires witnesses, often involves signs and symbols to help those included in the covenant remember and celebrate the exchange. A wedding ceremony, then, includes the exchanging of covenant promises or vows and covenant signs like rings, unity candles, and gifts. There are witnesses, those that are in the crowd. There is an official, usually the pastor, who oversee this ceremony. Right? I, am, I actually wear two rings, and the one ring is my wedding ring. It is 30 years old here in just another two months. Uh, so I've been wearing this ring for 30 years, and this other one my wife gave me when we had our 10-year anniversary. And so for the last 20 years, I've had two rings, and both of those rings remind me what? They remind me that I entered in a covenant. It's a covenant between with God. It's covenant with my wife first, and then it's a covenant together with God, right? So marriage is a covenant, and you've exchange covenant promises we call those vows marriage is a beautiful and serious covenant witnessed honored and guarded by god it involves an agreement between a man and a woman to hold fast to one another by the grace of god as husband and wife during their earthly lives god is the example of what it means to be covenant faithful right so when (laughs) in the old testament one of the key words that's used to describe god is the term hesed hesed means covenant faithfulness god is one of his primary attributes in the old testament is he is covenant faithful so, in marriage, when we consider covenants, we have to begin our thinking with the fact that God is a covenant faithful God, and God is the one who demonstrates what that looks like in the way that we live together with a husband or a wife. So, marriage is a <coughs> lifelong, pardon me, I keep coughing this evening, is a lifelong covenant. The lifelong means. Right? Covenant faithful. You want to live and protect and guard, and we could use a number of words, that covenant. So that's where we begin. Let's add a little bit more. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship. I don't know if you noticed or not, but we saw a couple of key verses already that talks about companionship. In Malachi chapter 2 of course right when we said yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant both of those terms are in that text when you go to the Proverbs text that we read a few minutes ago they're both in that one as well who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God so it relates to companionship now a lot can be said, and we did introduce this text last week, pardon me, last weekend when we were together. And we talked through, when we were talking about creation, we talked about and talked through the text in Genesis. Now we have several slides here with verses. For the sake of of our time, I'm not going to read every one of these verses. Uh But, just to know, God created man and woman, as it says there in verse 27, in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. The text in chapter 2 talks about God looked out and he saw, in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded of the man of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the Lord said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Literally, the term here is an opposite of. Right? So the God made Adam... And then he made Eve, and he made Eve specific, right? It's a brand new model. It's the opposite of the male, right? The reality is husbands and wives are made to complement each other, the wife specifically to complement the husband. So the text says we'll make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Right. So Adam has all of these animals that are coming to him. And as he engages those animals in the Garden of Eden... He is naming them. Well, as they come, evidently they were coming in at least pairs, maybe more than a pair, but at least pairs. And so one would come and another would come, and Adam would understand with his wisdom. Right? Recall that in chapter two of Genesis, Adam had a hundred percent of his brain capacity that he could employ. Right? Because he wasn't fallen. His body functioned at peak performance. It's the way that God created it. So he has these animals coming and he understands that God has given the command to animals and birds and the various species that they would reproduce. Adam understands what's going on. But he sees himself and he understands he doesn't have... That same kind of compliment. He doesn't have a partner. He doesn't have a companion. And so, he makes that observation. 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So Adam gets introduced to Eve in the garden, right? So some people will say, well, Adam was lonely. That's why God created Eve. The text never says that. The text simply says that there wasn't a helper comparable to Adam. If Adam hoped to fulfill the creation mandate, which is in... Uh, verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply. We'll talk about that next hour. If, God, if Adam hoped to fulfill the creation mandate, he needed someone else to fulfill that mandate with him. He needed the helper that was comparable. And so God brought her to Adam, and Adam said, now this, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the, Moses put this narration in, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So Adam and Eve then are married. God performs this first marriage ceremony. The heart of a marriage covenant is a lifelong, life and death promise to provide companionship in fellowship and deep intimacy. Right? You make a promise that this is what I'm going to do. I am going to be faithful to my covenant and we're going to be companions. The intimate union is equivalent to becoming one flesh, an act. That is accomplished by the process of leaving parents as it says in verse 24 and cleaving to one another just like it mentions here in verse 25 of chapter 2 as well as in proverbs 31 this kind of companionship brings no shame or confusion but rather it brings trust so let's add to our definition marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman created in which is what I just mentioned the image of God that's from chapter one right so God makes man and woman both in the image now later this evening you're going to be talking about the role of a man the husband and then tomorrow morning we'll start the time together talking about the role of a wife what's critical to know is that husbands and wives Although they have different roles, because God has assigned them the role, a husband and wife are equal in image, right? They're mutuals. So the husband and the wife, they are co-equals at the level of image. They both were made in the image of God. The problem, as I said, as I mentioned to you a moment ago, the problem that God saw in Adam began being alone what's his inability to display the image God wanted him to display right it was clear that God says you're in the image and then he says go and be fruitful and multiply well that's only possible as Adam had this helper Adam had someone of his nature and substance to help him steward the glory of God in creation And over creation whereas God creates and subdues life he wanted his image bearer to create and subdue life in submission to his rule Adam needed a helper to create and subdue life and so God gives him a helper and Adam and Eve then are both made in the image of God and as they have children right he says be fruitful and multiply as he has children those children are made in the image of god right we know that for a variety of reasons but one would be in genesis 9 when noah comes off the ark and god is talking to him recall that he says God blessed them. This is chapter 9, verse 1. And he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then if you go down to verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. What's God saying there in chapter 9? He's saying that The reason you can't take another person's life is because that person is in the image of God. So chapter 9, chapter 1, 2 and 3, that's 1 and 2 specifically, that's before sin. You get to chapter 9, it's after sin, but we still have image. So the man and woman both are in the image of God. Let's add to this marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman created in the image of god that results in unity results in unity you saw it or heard it in the chapter 2 summary when he says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh right so we understand this idea flesh flesh here when you see it in this sense uh, it relates to (coughs) pardon me it relates to the fact that they are one flesh one uh, person it's talking about this union it could refer to one people it could refer to one family Or it could be talking about we are together as one, and that's what it's referring to here. It doesn't mean the obliteration of any and all distinctions between a husband and a wife. It does, though, mean a cooperative, coordinated tandem. I have a good buddy of mine that loves, he and his wife love to get out, and they ride. They have... A bicycle that's built for two people right so they have it has two seats it has two sets of pedals and they love at least once or twice a year uh, they will put on a tire that looks like that you plucked them out of the 1930s and they get on that bicycle and they ride around town just for the fun of just for the fun of it and people stare and they have a good time with them usually lots of pictures online that kind of stuff so they have a blast with this bicycle but what's true about that bicycle is that you both have to work in tandem you have to be a bit coordinated right you have to pedal at the same time you have to lean in and work together in terms of how you're riding the bicycle Uh, it's two people but you're working together as one right and when the When our notes here say that it doesn't mean that you're not distinct because you are distinct, right? Although, let's keep using that illustration. You have a husband and wife. They're both on this bicycle that's been built for two. You still have a husband and a wife. They still use their own muscles. They still use their own mind. They still have to lean one direction or the other. Right as individuals they still are responsible and they still have their free will their volition all of those things are true as an individual yet in relationship to riding this bicycle they have to work together to get where they're going Well in that way we could think about marriage Right if the husband and the wife both have their personhood in fact any time you have a husband or a wife who treats over a lengthy period of time the other spouse in a way that lessens his or her personhood we typically call that abuse right and the church steps in sometimes the government steps in we have ways to give people mercy at least to confront anytime you see abuse what is abuse abuse is when you're Essentially overpowering the personhood of the other of the other individual. Well, in marriage, that should never be the case, right? A husband and a wife should function together in a cooperative, coordinated tandem. Uh, I love to watch senior adults. I was a senior adult pastor. It's fun to watch them as they've lived together for 50-plus years and just to see how they function together. Dr. Bob Smith was one such example with his wife, Leona. Leona had a heart problem that caused her to lose her memory. And although she could remember some things long-term, and she could begin a conversation within Somewhere in the conversation, she would just lose track of what was going on. And so they would sit in two easy chairs, and I would tickly, usually take a rocking chair and kind of pull it up, and so it would be a triangle. I'd pull my chair close to theirs. They would both be in easy chairs, and she would have a rocker that sat... Pardon me. She would, they had a lamp that sat between them on a table. But their chairs came pretty close together so that when his hand, when he was sitting in his chair... Uh, his arm would be close to hers and her arm would be there close to his and I watched them it took me a little bit to pick up on it but it was so fascinating and I eventually asked him about it in private as we would have a lengthy conversation they both loved to talk about theology and he was a biblical counselor and trained thousands of people in counseling as we would be sitting there having a conversation you could see her start fidgeting with her clothes She had an afghan that she often had on her lap. You could see her messing with her afghan. And he would pick that up out of the corner of his eye. And he would just reach over and put his hand on her arm. Never quit conversation. And she would just totally settle down. Now, she didn't know what was going on. She had forgotten where we were. She probably knew me. She knew it was him. She wasn't completely okay in the situation, but when he would just reach over and touch her, I would watch her entire body relax. And as she lost more and more of her memory, she trusted him in a way that was precious to watch. We'd, I'd take him out to eat. We, we spent many Valentine's Days together because of, I was at their house usually for that conference I've been at this week. And so... When I would be out at a Valentine's meal, the person would come, the waiter or waitress, and say, hey, what would y'all like to eat? And he would say, I'll have this, and she'll have that, and he'll pick something. And she would just smile, and she'd always say to him, thank you. Right? It was so sweet because she just trusted what he was choosing, I, I skipped one thing when I was thinking about them sitting beside each other. Uh, he would, he would often just pat her. Sometimes he'd move her Afghan a bit, but he would pat her, and within probably a minute or so, she would just look at him and she'd smile and she'd say, "I love you." It was sweet. Why? Because they've lived a life as a coordinated tandem, a lifelong. Covenant of companionship, so that after 60 years, even with brain difficulty, you could see this relationship demonstrated together, this unity that they had. Notice then, marriage is a lifelong companion, a covenant of companionship between a man and woman created in the image of God that results in unity for the purpose Of dominion, for the purpose of dominion. All right, so here, what are we thinking about? We're thinking specifically about the creation mandate. All right, the Genesis 1, specifically verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them. Now, the word blessed means God gave them everything necessary to do what God had called them to do. Right, so, if my son recently has a job, the new employer that he has sent a gigantic box, and when you open that box, it had a hat, two hoodies, two long sleeve shirts, and five short sleeve shirts. So, he has everything he needs to go and start working for this new employer and to be successful in that right so you would say that box blessed him if we use it in the same analogy so when it says and god blessed them it means god gave adam and eve now how did he do that i would say there's a number of ways but one of the very specific ways would be physical which again we'll talk about later but god gave them (coughs) everything they needed In order to obey and what did he ask them to obey he said to be fruitful and multiply every couple should have as their goal to have children not every couple will have children but that's not up to the couple that is up to God and up to his providence and his sovereignty right every couple should have a heart toward children Should have a heart to have children. And when they see they can't, they should have a heart toward mercy. Right? They ought to be thinking adoption and fostering and all the other ways uh, that you can bless children. God said, as part of the creation mandate, repeat it again, as we read just a moment ago in Genesis 9, repeat it again to be fruitful and multiply. And he says, subdue the earth. Right, so man is to subdue or to make the earth subject to him. God is the regent, right? God is the one in charge, and man are man is the subregents. We are the ones that are responsible for our world under the authority and care of God. Without God, the world would not stay together. Right? There's not one atom that would would act the way it's supposed to act if God wasn't, in fact, keeping the world running. The promise to Noah ensures that until the end time, when God determines to let this world blow up by fervent heat, God guarantees that the world will function. He's in charge. We then, as male and female, we function under him. We are sub-regents to subdue the earth. And so that's our responsibility. Notice then, marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman created in the image of God that results in unity for the purpose of dominion. Then our final two words, under God. God creates in Genesis. He rules and rests. Genesis chapter 1, days 1 through 6. Man is to work, rule, and then rest and worship. That's every day of our lives. Right? The work, rule, and rest must be for and under God's dominion. And his claim to our loyalty and love is above the family's claim. Right? A husband and wife, when they come together as this brand new couple their number one priority what should be god it's not the family of origin it's we want to husband and we want to be a wife that is uh, functioning for the glory of god as we reflect the first and second great commandment together and so we are committed to god we live for his glory we live under his authority couple of things to note. A covenant relationship is not common today. Marriage is often viewed very casually. In fact, you go to a lot of wedding ceremonies and the word covenant may never actually be murmured, right? If you go to a ceremony that you hear someone say covenant and uh, I, my ears prick up, I was like, ah, this may be my kind of ceremony. I'm interested in this. I want this thing discussed. One of the interesting passages is the first covenant in the Bible was between God and Abraham. And what God did in that particular covenant is he had Abraham go and kill all of these animals. And then after the animals animals were killed, they went from very large to very small, a, a whole half a dozen or more. And after he did that, he had Abraham cut them all in half and so then he would put one half of the carcass over here the other half over here and so he lined this walkway or he lined this pathway with half a carcass on each side and so then in order for the covenant to be ratified god walked through right it was actually fire went through this and That was actually an unconditional covenant but God walking through it with fire demonstrated God was committed to that covenant and as I've already mentioned God is covenant faithfulness faithful now what does that actually signify essentially it signifies this if I break this covenant you can do to me what we've done to these animals you can cut them right in half now I do a ton of premarital counseling and I have often said to the young ladies when they're in premarital counseling, my suggestion, no one's ever taken it, but my suggestion would be to have your man go out and hunt several species of animals, and what a cool decoration, especially if it's an outside wedding, but just to put those carcasses (laughs) down the center aisle and think about what a great picture that would be for covenant faithful. It would... It would be great i've only had one couple come close and that couple did not actually use carcasses they used uh, candles and the person before anybody came down the aisle they had one of the pastors come up read that text and talk about covenant faithfulness so that was the closest that they've ever come Uh, but i will wait to see somebody will take me up on it someday so Notice, companionship is often in today's world reduced to romantic feelings. Right? So at Christmas time, the most popular channels on cable are Hallmark and the others, and there's about half a dozen now that just run Christmas movies 24 7 from prior to Thanksgiving all the way till New Year's. And each one of those have some kind of romantic, some kind of romance at, its, at the heart of it. Romance is there's no, nothing wrong with it. But companionship isn't romance. Right? A choice to be a companion is more significant than catching somebody's eye when you bump into them at the ice skating rink and that kicks off a brand long-term relationship. Right, so it's not simply romantic feelings. Equality is reduced to identity without distinction. That's simply not the way God intended it. Yes, we're equals, but we are separate. We are in the image of God. We're responsible for the role God's given us. We have our own personhood. So there is equality at the level of image, and there's responsibility, and God... We should count that deer as God, but the world system—what do they want? They just want we're I, we're equals, right? There's no distinction between us. Unity is often rejected for individualism and self-realization. I see this a lot flying. I get to fly often, and on flights, I cage. <coughs> Permit me. I occasionally observe this take place, where you have. I hear people talk about it you have men sit down by women on a plane and I've heard more than once a man and a woman never met before they sat down beside each other and you hear them begin this conversation and it goes something like yeah I'm on my vacation and I try to take two vacations a year by myself my husband or wife is at home and and this is my me time and this is where I take care of self and uh, absolute silliness right and in fact sometimes I've observed the couple get so engaged with each other in me time they walk right out of the airport together and I assume only to uh, commit infidelity I mean it's amazing what would open the door for that because of this sense of well we're just our own thing but yet we're married no you're married And now you're one thing. You're one flesh. You're a husband and a wife. And so we have to be very committed to that. Dominion is viewed as exploitation. right? We're called as a husband and wife and as a family to have dominion over the earth. It doesn't exploit it if you have to kill a caterpillar or whatever that is. Sometimes that happens. Why? Because the earth is for image and image bears and we're responsible for it. We're not worshiping the earth. Flip that though, we should be the most consistent environmentalist. We should have the most care for the world around us because we're the ones given the responsibility to care for it. But we don't worship it. And if you don't worship it, that makes a big difference. What does the world what does a sinful world system do? They worship it. And so it's in the wrong place. And then childbearing is often neglected for selfish ambition. None of those things are appropriate. Number seven then, marriage is ordained by God. For sure we see that in Ephesians 5. What a beautiful picture we get. It's probably one of the most popular pictures of marriage. As we've already said, it's this lifetime of companionship where a husband and wife what's critical if you'll notice in verse 18 it says be filled with the spirit then it describes in 19 20 and 21 the results of being filled with the spirit and then as it details those results that's where we get our text about marriage so it's a lifetime of companion as a husband and wife who are walking in the spirit together Who are walking with the Lord together. And it's patterned after the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Notice when he says in verse 31 of chapter 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he goes on, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. What a wonderful principle. Notice this. God's purpose includes that marriage demonstrates the most intimate of all human relationships, and that is one flesh. And it resembles, as we're going to see a minute from now, the church. Right in Genesis 2.18, God designed, we've already talked about it, a suitable helper god brings adam and eve together and when god brings them together this new and distinct inseparable relationship provides companionship for us along the journey of christlikeness for them along the journey of life as they had fellowship with god and then of course work through all of the consequences of sin but god has given us husbands and wives for that purpose and so we walk in life not simply to have fun together, but to become like Jesus together. Right? God is not most, hap- most concerned about your happiness. God is most concerned about your sanctification, about you becoming like Jesus. He lets sinners get married. Right? Dave Harvey's written an excellent book. We have some out in the lobby. If you can be one of the first ones to get your hands on it, you'll be served well, right, if you'll get in line before the selfish people, what you'll find is that it's called, When Sinners Say I Do, it's an excellent book, Dave's a, a good man, um, what, because sinners get married, and sinners who get married, what, they have a marriage that has sin in it. So at that point, you're going to have to be both committed to covenant and committed to Christ-likeness, right? So those two things go together. And what happens? Marriage, as you live that out, according to verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5, marriage becomes a visible, physical, temporal covenant covenant that pictures embodies and points to the eternal covenant between christ and the church in other words every marriage should be a walking living talking example of what it means to have christ as the head and the body of christ as the as the body as the follower right so that the man would be as christ the lady would be as the church and so you become the embodiment of that number eight the character of marriage is established by God biblical love for your spouse is to be based on God's love for you and must be practiced out of a desire to please or honor the Lord Right, The goal of your marriage is to love as Christ has loved. I think you can jot down Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Right in the Ephesians 5, later in that text, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. God helps us understand how to develop this one flesh relationship in three ways. Notice in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, similar to Matthew, similar to Genesis. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are three critical words here that we want to think about. The first one is leaving. Leaving means to leave behind. It's the same word. Remember when Joseph was in, with, was in the house serving and Potiphar's wife, came on him to sin with him. And it says that he forsook his coat, right? He got out as quick as he could, leaving his coat behind, right? So it's to leave behind. It has that sense of a definitive, specific act where you leave that and you go and serve the Lord, or you go and serve each other, I should say. And so you leave that behind. It has to be balanced between Deuteronomy 4.9 and 1 Timothy 5.8, which essentially the text would say, you want to, yes, you're responsible for your family. You're responsible for your relatives. You need to be careful to show honor to all of your relatives and family of origin. But at the same time, your primary responsibility is now to your spouse. Right? It's more than just geographical leaving. It's much more than just simply leaving the house. In fact, in this particular time period, often they would stay living together. And my good friend I was talking to this week, he was telling me that his in-laws live with them. Right? So does that mean that they've not left? if the in-laws live in the house as well that it's not really about location it's about your heart and it's about your attention it's about the authority for a woman it means she shifts her authority to her husband so that she respects her dad she respects her mom but she follows her husband for a husband it means that he shifts his authority to function as the leader of his wife and to help her as they walk through life together it includes moving from this is a i like this statement from a parent-centered and parent-controlled life right no longer are you responsible to your parents now you're responsible together as a couple couple things to note first tpt it's a it's an Uh, three letters that often people talk about in counseling, it stands for temporary, permanent, temporary. The first temporary is what? It's the relationship that a husband or wife has with the family of origin, right? So my daughter was married in the last couple years here. The temporary relationship that she had was with her mom and I, as her parents and specifically responsible for. Her. Then she gets married. That is a permanent bond. That is a permanent relationship. It's a covenant of companion, a lifelong covenant of companionship. What? Between a husband and wife. That's permanent. What's the third word? Temporary. That is your relationship with your children. So that. Basically, that's a 20, 22, 24, 29 year relationship, whatever it looks like, where your children are, you're responsible as their authority. There's only one permanent relationship, that's what we have to pay attention to. What it also means is as you're beginning to get married, you need to settle past conflict. You don't want to come into marriage with conflicts still hanging over you because they're going to hurt your relationship. Why? Because now you leave that behind, you have a new relationship. You can't be slavishly dependent on parents. I had somebody recently say that their daughter was wanting to get married and as they were beginning to talk about marriage she was essentially implying that it was important for mom and dad to keep her on the phone plan the health plan and all of these things and the dad sat this new guy down that wanted to marry his daughter and he said all of those are yours buddy why because you're wanting to marry her you're taking responsibility and i'm giving you responsibility or i'm not giving you my daughter right so you can't Depend. A parent can volunteer. A parent can say, you know what, we'd love to keep you on our insurance till you turn 30. A parent can do that if they want to, but certainly a child should not expect it because you're getting married. Right? So you can't be dependent on your parents. And your spouse's concern is first and primary. I had a friend, and I'll tell the story quickly. I had a friend, his he and his wife, his mom and aunt would come up from another state close by, somewhere where Aaron lives, down in that neighborhood. And so uh, his parents, his mom and aunt would come up and they would bring decorations for his house. And so they would walk into a room and they would take down the wife's curtains and they would hang up their own curtains. They would change pillows, they would change lamps, They would bring whatever they wanted and would change whatever they wanted. And the wife would get furious. They would take her stuff and just march it right out to the dumpster and put it in the dumpster. And the husband let them. And so they, for some odd reason, they were having marriage problems. and (laughs) They came to see me and they, I was looking at him he said, I don't want to offend my mom and my aunt right he needed to understand this principle and we helped him understand that and they got it figured out Uh, they're still married a couple decades later so spouse's concern is first and primary number two the word is cleaving when it says and he shall be joined to his wife what a great word That word means to weld, right? So when you join a husband and a wife, you're welding them together, right? If you know anything about welding, where you make a weld joint, that joint is actually stronger than either one of those metals separately, right? So here, the Bible uses the term to be welded together. In other words, you're learning to love each other. Your commitment to each other should be equal to your commitment to Christ. When you get married, it's not by blind chance, it's a deliberate choice. It's not out of convenience, but you're going to stay married out of obedience. It's not, let's see how the cards fall, but it's a covenant. It's not compatibility but a welding together separation is only appealing when a husband or wife looks at self and not God's purpose for us as image bearers we can never accomplish God's purpose alone therefore the couple must avoid selfishness in order to not make separation appealing anytime you have one of the two thinking about contemplating or moving towards separation or divorce it's because that individual is more than likely very selfish right the, of course the other person could do some stuff to, that encourages it but it i appreciate uh, a friend of mine who helped me think through that several years ago The couple has not been given the authority to dissolve the marriage. That's what Matthew 19 said. Jesus says, what God puts together, let not man put asunder. We don't have the authority to dissolve a marriage. That's why in premarital counseling, you better make sure they know what they're doing. Because it's a big decision. It's a big boy decision, big girl decision. I ask them up to five minutes before the wedding. I say, are you sure you want to get married? And I tell them, if five minutes before the wedding, you tell me, no, I want out, I'll walk right into the ceremony and say, folks, we're glad you're here, thank you for being here, we do not want a cake to waste, so go have some cake, and we're not going to have a married someone today. And I'll be happy to do that, and take the heat from the parents, because I've sat in way too many counseling sessions where I've heard people say, I begged not to get married the day I got married. And I said, I will never be part of that absolutely never why because it's too important it's a covenant you don't have the authority to dissolve it love means that a husband gives his life for his wife just as christ gave his life for the church so cleaving here's our last one we'll wrap up we're it looks like we're just went into overtime weaving what is that you become one flesh you become one flesh the idea here is intimacy Marital intimacy consists of oneness, closeness, communion, and unity. It's not specifically talking about sex and intercourse. Some people would say that you have to consummate your marriage. We'll talk more about that next hour. I disagree with that sense of it. That's actually a Catholic doctrine. There are many problems that come when there's a sin in weaving. When you do not actively seek to come together as a husband and wife as one flesh and enjoy the communion as one flesh. It produces all kinds of problems. Just two other notes here as we wrap up. You always give up something in a covenant for something better, right? When you make a covenant with somebody, you always give up something. Both people in a covenant they both give up independence and they choose to have this relationship together right they've covenanted together in marriage that's true as well it always includes a sacrifice the covenant of marriage puts a magnifying glass to our selfishness versus our selflessness and sacrificial attitude toward the other person dying even more to our own desires so it's important that we celebrate and carefully evaluate one flesh. Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom as we seek to do these things well. In Jesus' name.